following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see each one of you. Um, it's good already to worship together, and glad that we can continue in worship now as we open the Word together. Um, those joining us on live stream, good morning to you too. We miss you. Um, we know that your heart is to be gathered with us, and we are praying for you as you work through your circumstances uh, to be back here gathered with us again. Today, uh, I'm going to be referencing several passages of Scripture, um, but let's turn to Luke 24 as we begin our time. I'm going to read a portion of it in just a moment. As you do so, let me be the first to no doubt wish you a very happy Ascension Sunday. Yeah, that's what I thought. You know, like, Ascension Sunday, though, right? Like, woohoo, hey, this is great, yeah, yeah. No, that's not the response. That's not the response from the 9 o'clockers either. Um, well, it is Ascension Sunday. It's the Sunday following Thursday's Feast of Ascension, if you're a big follower of the Christian calendar. Um, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but let's read the verses here at the end of Luke's Gospel, Luke 24 where he talks about the ascension. And the ascension, again, that we're just speaking of being lifted up to go up. Um, and the event takes place here at the close of Christ's earthly ministry. So let's read these verses. Excited that we're taking some time this morning to consider the ascension and enthronement of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's read and pray together. Luke 24, starting at verse 44. This is the word of God. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray. God, the Ancient of Days, we come before you not as ones holy and of ourselves, but having been declared holy by you through the precious blood of Christ, atonement for our sins, a life lived in perfect obedience to you. Glory in this reality, we worship you today for making us new, working to make us whole in Christ. May your word sanctify us today the remembrance of the gospel and the supper encourage us, form us, be grace to us as we continue on in this journey of a Christian life. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So it is Christian tradition in remembering the events of the life of Christ to commemorate Christ's ascension 40 days after Easter, which was this past Thursday. Um, it's not uncommon now, though, for churches to focus on Christ's ascension as they gather the following Sunday, which would be today. Uh, this tradition and this holiday, it's, it's a national holiday in some countries. Um, this is often 
remembered and celebrated with a meal. Of course, right? Like it's not a Christian holiday without it. Meal being the focus. Um, sometimes there are all-night vigils. Sometimes there are specific readings of scripture and other liturgies or ancient writings, processions, etc. cetera. Uh, and not to be outdone by the strangest of eggs and bunnies for Easter, Ascension Day has some pretty peculiar traditions in the history of its celebration as well. For instance, um, our British brethren, um, they have in the past beat the bounds on Ascension Day. This involves chasing boys around parish boundaries and beating them with willow branches, symbolically purifying them of evil. And conveniently enough, it teaches them where the borders of the village are so they don't wander off too far. Um, if the boys aren't up for this on a particular year, the property owners are known to walk around the borders of their estate, pause at certain property markers to pray, read scripture, and yes, beat those markers with sticks. <clears throat> Towns and cities in some countries mark this holiday by chasing a person dressed up as the devil through the streets, catching them, and then dunking them in a pond. This symbolizes Christ's victory over Satan when he sat down at the Father's right hand. Now, I don't know what this might mean for the spiritual state of Cornerstone, but I have a strong suspicion we'd have a lot of hands go up in here if I asked for volunteers to dress up as the devil so we could all chase you down Nimmo Parkway and dunk you in the retention pool by Harris Teeter. Um, those things are real things people have done um, in remembering Ascension Day. Now, I, I get it. We laugh. We're not used to, um, usually in our tradition, uh, we're not used to following the Christian liturgical calendar as thoroughly as others do, um, unless it coincides with like a holiday that our culture has already accepted, right? So Christmas, Easter, we're used to that. We love that, and we will um, bring that in in lots of different ways. I'm not saying we should start following the liturgical calendar necessarily either. However, the Christian calendar can serve on different points by deliberately bringing aspects of God's story to the forefront of our faith and practice and helps us fill out full, the full doctrinal spectrum of Christ's work and our life in him. So that's what we aim to do today, actually. We decided to use Ascension Day to purposefully focus on what that strange event at the end of Luke's gospel, which we just read, is, and how it is rich in meaning and has absolutely wonderful ramifications for true Christians. So we only have time this morning really to scratch the surface on this, uh, on the doctrine, just to highlight just a few parts of Scripture that implicitly or explicitly speak of the realities that the Ascension has brought to us. I hope that the things that we present um, in these next few minutes enrich our understanding of our salvation and strengthen and embolden our faith. They further free us to live and serve our God with joy and cause us to stand in awe and worship of our great God. Unfortunately, the ascension is often relegated to a little afterthought of the life of Christ. I don't think we're quite exactly sure what to do with it. I mean, we already tell the world that we believe the creator of the universe became a baby boy. He was humiliated and hung on a cross to die like a common criminal when he was really the king of the world. But it's okay, he came back to life. That's hard enough to proclaim, right? Why cap it off with a story of teleportation, right? Maybe it's just unconsciously too much for our intelligent modern scientific minds to believe. It, it does seem so random and far-fetched, doesn't it? Maybe it's because we focus so much on Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that we think the ascension isn't so much a crucial part of 
Christ's work, but just kind of a minor side story. Or worse, maybe it's an embarrassing lack of planning on God's part. Like the incarnation is such a wonderful story, right? It stood the test of time. Passion Week and Easter are gut-wrenching tales of heartache and glory. And then, then what, right? Um, we've got Jesus still here, still hanging around, not much else to do. What do we do, right? So it's kind of like, hey, guys, uh, just quietly get Jesus up to a hill somewhere. Please bring him there. I'll send some angels to quickly get him and take him back to base, right? Like that's what, in a way, ascension becomes to us. We just don't understand. Maybe it's because we don't understand our scriptures well enough to see the significance of Christ's ascension and the plan of God to redeem his creation and to reunite heaven and earth. Maybe it's a little of all of these things. But don't feel bad. It's not a new problem. The theologian John Owen said this in the 17th century. He said, The assumption of our Lord Jesus Christ into glory or his glorious reception into heaven with his state and condition therein is a principal article of the faith of the church, the great foundation of its hope and consolation in this world. The darkness of our faith herein, which what he means by that is our lack of understanding of this doctrine, is the cause of all our disconsolations and most of our weaknesses in obedience. Those are hard words. Maybe we still should feel a little ashamed 400 years later, and I think in certain ways that quote is still true. So with that as a setup and background, I, I hope and pray that this following whirlwind presentation of Christ's ascension and enthronement within the plan of God and a few reasons as to why it matters for us in this life and the one to come isn't something that's just anticlimactic. Again, we only have a time to highlight a few things and to hear just a bit of scripture on this matter. But again, I pray that God's spirit would be gracious to stir in us a curiosity drive us to further study on this doctrine, and that it would result in our growth and wholeness in Christ for the praise of his glory. Folks, the ascension is a glorious fulfillment of Old Testament expectation. It's a keystone event in the saving work of Christ and the whole story of redemption. It defines Christ's present status and work as our faithful high priest and king above all earthly powers. It defines the age in which we now live in, where the world of Adam, defined by sin, corruption, and death, a world that is passing away, is overlapped by the world of Christ, which is defined by redemption and holiness and life, a world that stretches ahead in front of us for eternity. It is part of the true story of the world that we believers live in light of, and yes, part of the gospel story that we are to proclaim to all mankind. So let me give you a quick overview of the Old Testament background of ascension. Maybe just having this helps us better see its importance and that it does fit in in a very important way to the life and work of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to be mentioning passages throughout here. We're not going to take the time to look at all of them. I'll summarize some of them, but I encourage you to write them down and read them later on as we think through these things. Some of them will be on the uh, sermon worksheet that some of you use in community groups this week as well. But in 2 Samuel 6, 1 Chronicles 13 through 16, we have stories of King David taking the Ark of the Covenant, and this is with some difficulty. There are military battles and um, marches and things in the, in the course of this journey, but it's King David taking the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem and placing it within 
the tabernacle there. David is God's appointed king of his covenant people. David's the prefigurement and ancestor of the promised Messiah who would one day reign perfectly over God's people and God's creation. The ark was the center of God's presence with his people. And David, in these passages, marched joyfully into the city as a conqueror, a conquering king, and he enthroned Yahweh as king before the people in Jerusalem, in Zion, in the dwelling place of God on earth. Psalms like the one we read responsively at the outset of our time together, Psalm 24, and others like Psalm 68, Psalm 110, they're known as Psalms of Enthronement. They are about the installation of a royal king, and they have these narratives in, in uh, Samuel and Second Chronicles in mind as David writes these psalms. Consider Moses, who as a leader and mediator of Israel, ascended Mount Sinai and met God in the clouds on behalf of the people. Moses and Aaron, and the elders of Israel, they ascended Mount Sinai to meet with God and to eat and drink with him at the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. You can read about these things in Exodus 19 through 24. Here's an interesting one. Later on, Elijah, the prophet's ministry, concluded with a literal whirlwind ascension into heaven where Yahweh dwells. This is 2 Kings 2, the first 18 verses of that chapter. This is a mysterious event indeed, but it does point to the ascension of the better and the final prophet, Jesus. Luke now specifically records Christ's ascension. In both of his books, in both Luke and in Acts, he is the gospel writer that specifically includes the ascension narrative in his writings. So we read the end of Luke 24 just a moment ago. Let's talk about a couple things here in these ascension narratives that help us maybe understand the importance of this. Notice that the last thing Jesus does with the disciples is to bless them. Blessing is a priestly act. Jesus blessing his disciples before he ascends on high helps to define part of Christ's ongoing ministry in this present age. That ministry is being our high priest before the Father. His authoritative blessing rests on his disciples, the Savior and Lord and high priest. Jesus' exaltation as a result of his ascension, it's distinctly Trinitarian, and it's just like how he came in his incarnation. Consider these similarities and these parallels. In the incarnation, he submits to the Father's will to humble himself, to take on human flesh and enter our experience, be humbled to the point of death on a cross. In his ascension, he likewise submits to the Father's will to be exalted for his perfect work and to take the throne was vacated at the fall. It's the Spirit's work. The Spirit is the one initiating the action. In the incarnation, it is the Spirit who brings about miraculous conception. Christ comes in flesh to earth. In the ascension, it's the Spirit's work of initiation to carry Christ up into heaven as man to the Father. And so we see the Godhead at work in this event. Now consider the ascension narrative at the beginning of Acts. So Acts 1, 6 through 11, I will read for us. Luke records here. So when they had come together, they asked him, 
Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Here, Luke is specifically and purposely drawing uh, from Daniel 7, reminiscent of the Son of Man language In that passage that John read for us in our assurance of hope, it is of this one who shows up through the clouds of heaven and is presented before the ancient of days who is considered worthy to receive an eternal kingdom to have dominion over all peoples. Luke is teaching us here that the ascension of Jesus Christ has specific purposes in the plan and timetable of God. He is indeed inaugurating and coronating his kingdom at this time. And so Jesus reigns in heaven as king over all dominions and authorities, and he can authorize his people to go and be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus commissions his watching disciples, his white, watching disciples to be witnesses of his rule and reign. Remember that Matthew records this too at the end of his gospel, that Jesus has been given all power and authority on heaven and earth. And then because of this, he commissions his disciples as gospel ministers. This is because of his pending ascension and enthronement on high. This is where his authority comes from. Luke alludes to Elijah's strange ascension, that being caught up in the whirlwind piece. In 2 Kings 2, Elijah promises his protege, Elisha, a double portion of his spirit if Elisha sees him being taken up into heaven. Elisha does see him be taken up into heaven, and as a result, he performs way more miracles, many more miracles than Elijah ever did. So, too, does Jesus remind his disciples, he's done this already, but he does it again at this point um, before his ascension, that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to them. They see Jesus taken up into heaven. And a few days later, the Spirit comes on them at Pentecost and empowers them as witnesses. They perform signs and wonders and miraculously speak truth to people of many languages. And the church is formed. That's just a quick whirlwind uh, overview of Old Testament expectation and some of the gospel accounts. And I hope even in that we can see that just from that simple, quick survey, that the ascension is not an embarrassing minor afterthought in the work of Christ and his ministry to his people. It's crucial. Christ's ascension into heaven is the stamp of approval on his sufficient substitutionary death and glorious resurrection as the first fruits of resurrection for all those united to his work by faith. It is the movement from accomplished redemption at the cross to the application of that redemption throughout this age to all those he came to save as he moves from being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world to the high priest that applies his righteous life and atoning death to his kingdom people. It is the coronation 
of the king of creation where he boldly enters the heavenly temple and is enthroned at the Father's right hand. It is the beginning fulfillment of all that these Old Testament passages and the offices of prophet, priest, and king point to. The kingdom has come. It has begun in heaven. So, what are some of the beautiful realities and ramifications of Christ's ascension, his enthronement, and his present ministry that should matter to us? I mean, isn't all this a little bit like kind of just like high, lofty, theological, kind of like other-dimensional truth? Isn't it feel like that? How does it impact our 21st century lives, right? How does it impact our week of work and stress, errands, soccer practice, honey-do lists, TikTok, classes, deliverables, sickness, interpersonal strife, yard work, dirty diapers, etc., etc. You get the point, right? Let me take a few minutes just to talk about a few reasons why the ascension matters to us, God's people, right now and for the life to come. First off, we're better off with Jesus in heaven than with him here on earth with us. And I think, you know, though we said earlier that we lose maybe and don't think too much about the ascension, I think this is one we do pretty well. We understand um, the doctrine here, but let me play it out a little for us. Um, a theologian has said that Paul reminds us that if Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain. That's in him talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. This theologian says that's true. And if Christ is not ascended, our faith is also in vain. Think about this. Christ's continued presence on earth with us as a man would mean that he cannot be with his church completely. He cannot carry on his priestly ministry in heaven. He would not have been set up as king above all earthly powers. His kingdom in its form here and now would not be. His kingdom would be completely not yet, completely down the road, and not at all already as it is. That would not be good for us. Jesus reminds his disciples Maybe for the same reasons that we struggle sometimes in thinking like, this was just like a, this was just a little bit of an error, right? Why in the world would Jesus leave? That's not good. I want him here. My life would be so much better and I would be so much holier if he was here with me. We, we all feel that in certain ways, right? And that's, that's fine. We have that tension, of course, to be with our Savior and Lord. But John encourages his disciples in John 14 through 16, John records several discussions that Jesus is having with his disciples as his crucifixion looms close. And he explains to them that he is ending his earthly ministry and that he will not be with them forever in the way that he is there. But yet to not worry that it will be better that he leave because in his leaving, his spirit will come and his spirit will lead them into all truth his spirit will allow him to be present with all of his people. If Jesus remained on earth and he chose to be present with us here, gathered this morning, that would be awesome, right? <laughs> it would be really unfortunate for all the other churches in Virginia Beach. They wouldn't get him. I mean, we could maybe start a rotation, a sign-up sheet. I don't know. But it wouldn't be good, all right? Jesus must ascend 
and receive the exaltation that he is due because of his obedient work and his perfect sacrifice so that the Spirit can come and empower his people to continue to walk in his sufferings, to continue to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom that he began to proclaim. It is in this way that he is ever with his people. Christ can shepherd us. He can lead us into truth through his spirit, and he does. The church can be in the process of being built up into the temple of God as we are, Ephesians 3, because the spirit indwells us, and Christ serves as the cornerstone on which all of that is built. We have the the spirit sealing us and sanctifying us until the day of redemption, the day when we will rise and be glorified. It is better that Jesus is in heaven than to have him here with us on earth. Another reason why the ascension is important, why it matters. It solidifies God's delight in our humanity and our eternal destiny as redeemed, embodied souls. Paul reminds Timothy that there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus the eternal Son of God, took on flesh at a moment of time in history and will never cast it off again. He is eternally a man. He is eternally human. This is a glorious truth for us as Christians. God is about restoring a sin-cursed world to the state of being very good that he declared it to be in creation. It has always been very good in his eyes, but it has been marred severely by the fall, and it has rightly received a curse. But God is restoring. God is not allowing Satan to finally win the day, but he is working, and he has declared that in the finished work of Jesus and his ascension as the God-man, that he will work to make us whole again. He will not allow heaven and earth to be separated, to never be joined again. He is bringing things back together. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Think about the bookends of Christ's ministry. The incarnation is about God becoming enfleshed, God coming to earth, God coming to mankind. The ascension is about man, redeemed, glorified, resurrected, going to God. Do you see these connections between heaven and earth that despite the, 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 despite the wall of hostility that's put between heaven and earth because of sin and its curse, God is working to bring them back together and has started in the finished work of Jesus. We find ourselves here on earth living what we are called to do in this life, but already seated in the heavenlies with Christ, already a part of that heavenly Zion. And one day, these things will be reunited. So remember this, church. The story of redemption, it's not about our soul going one way, our bodies going another way, okay? So that we spend our eternity in some otherworldly ethereal state It's about Christ's own being remade and redeemed, a new humanity that will rise with Christ at his return. We will be whole with all parts of us finally integrated again. We will be embodied souls just as God created.
created us to be. But we will be restored and glorified embodied souls. There will no longer be any hurt, pain, tears, or sorrow. This is good news for us. It's good news that our Savior and King is human flesh like us. This is how we approach him. When we consider our Savior, his present work for us, when we go to him in prayer and we know that he is interceding on our behalf, he is a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses because he has walked all of those with us and for us. He is man and God. Hebrews 2 And if you want some reading to do, read all of Hebrews. All of Hebrews is talking about the sacrifice, the better sacrifice, and Christ's enthronement and what that means for us. Hebrews 2, the author goes back to several Old Testament passages to speak about these things. He takes this passage and he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then he says that it was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Behold, I and the children God has given to me. Our Savior and Lord is enfleshed like we are, and he is pleased to call us brothers and sisters. This is a glorious truth. Another reason why the ascension matters is that it equips us for prayer and it equips us for mission. Another reality of Christ's departure for his work as king and high priest in the heavenlies, so that the Spirit would come and be with us, that Christ would be with us through his Spirit, is that his Spirit intercedes for us, prays for us, helps us and guides us in our communion with our Savior. Paul says in Romans 8, 26 and 27, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit of God is working in us to stir our heart and mind for his purposes so that we would indeed desire to pray and pray that God may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're empowered by the Spirit to fulfill the Great Commission. Again, the end of the Gospel of Matthew reminds us of this. We are connected through the Spirit to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who has been given all authority over all of heaven and earth. It's only because of our union with him and the authority that he's been given in his ascension and reign that we can be empowered to walk, to talk, to proclaim and demonstrate the good news of Jesus Christ. It is only in this way that we can go and make disciples. We're empowered for mission because of the ascension and the resulting authority that God has, or Christ has. Another reason why the ascension is important is that 
through the ascension and enthronement of Jesus Christ, our accuser is replaced by our advocate. Think with me on this for a minute, and this could be a whole sermon in and of itself. And depending on your own background and understanding of things, maybe a little scandalous too, from either direction. But let me throw this thought out there. I'm going to make a statement that the situation of Job, when we read Job, and we see Satan bringing Job before the throne of God and accusing him, saying this man is guilty, he is not holy, he is not righteous, that that work that Satan is doing has been ended by the finished work and ascension of Jesus Christ. Let's walk this out a little bit. Revelation 12, 7 through 12. Let me read you a little bit of apocalyptic literature here, all right? Revelation 12, 7 and following says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now, we can hear pretty clearly in that literature that indeed Satan is being thrown down and he is being removed from God's throne room in heaven because of the authority of Christ having come into that spot. He no longer accuses them day and night before our God. You say, yeah, I hear that. I get that. I I thought that was just something that will happen someday. But man, Satan is really at work right now. I've felt his accusations. I've experienced these things. I'm just going to say that as I understand this passage, and as many other people do too, this is a result of the ascension and the beginning kingdom, the already kingdom of our God, Christ. This is taking place as many that have gone before us and their suffering and difficulties, even the recipients and hearers of the book of Revelation, trying to understand why they were suffering if Jesus' work was accomplished. Jesus, through the work of John, comforts them and tells them, you are indeed suffering. You are indeed walking in, on earth, in the realm of Satan that he has been thrown down to, and you will walk in the footsteps of Jesus. You will suffer. But understand that there are heavenly realities right now that you can hold fast to. There are realities of our Savior and King that encourage you and empower you for walking through that suffering. So I believe this is a picture of what's taking place when the Son of Man ascends into glory and is seated at the Ancient of Days. 
Again, we could talk about this for a lot longer sermon in itself, but Jesus alludes to these realities and quotes Daniel 7 a couple times too, of which this passage is drawing from, and says that in his crosswork and resulting exaltation, this is the beginning of victory over Satan, sin, and death. They might say, okay, like, yeah, I've always thought that that was the case. There are people that think that Satan can still accuse us before the throne, and others of you might say, like, no, I I thought that was the opposite. I thought he was totally still doing that. But, gee whiz, like, regardless of that, Jordan, like, look at the realities of life right now. Are you just saying Satan's just not doing anything right now? Not at all. I am saying that Satan certainly is a liar and a deceiver and a tempter. And he has the ability to do all of these things to us as Christians. Again, we have a footstep in heaven and a footstep still in this world. And so we experience all of the sin-cursed aspects of the world continue to. And we experience the fact that Satan has been thrown down and now reigns over this earth that is passing away in that sense, even though still under the authority of the king. And so we can sing the song that we just sang a few minutes ago, come and end Satan's earthly reign, Lord. Please fulfill your promises fully so that your kingdom comes in fullness and power and glory so that no longer will we want to or be tempted to believe the lies and deceptions of Satan. No longer can he be like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he can devour. These are real, true things that we still experience or the realities of the already, not yet, of God's kingdom. But think about it this way as well. The first Adam was given a commission to tend and care and keep the garden. He was commissioned as a priest over that temple sanctuary of Eden. And into that temple sanctuary comes the serpent, the deceiver of old. The first Adam should have seen the serpent, seen the lies, heard the lies, seen the deceit, heard the deceit, and said, out of Eden, get out. He should have been the one casting Satan out of God's dwelling place. But instead, he listened to and believed the lie, was deceived and fell into sin and brought on the curse. These are hard realities But the beautiful truth is that the second Adam, Jesus, did not make the same mistake. Jesus, when coming into the sanctuary temple of the true temple, not the earthly temple made with hands, but entering the presence of God in heaven, seeing the accuser in God's dwelling place, and being given the power and authority over all rulers and dominions, did not make the same mistake as Adam. He said, get out, and he cast him down to earth. He's been dealt the death blow. He fights dirty, but we are victorious and we are more than conquerors through Christ. There is no one, not even Satan, who can bring a charge against the elect of God. Romans 8. You say, well, is there any passage besides Revelation 12, something that I was thinking was just like still to come that speak to this? Well, listen to Paul in Colossians 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Ephesians 1:19 and following, Paul prays that the Ephesians would know that they would get this and experience this, that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. This is a present reality. This is what our ascended Lord and King is presently doing, his present position. One more reason why the ascension matters that I want to speak to, to lead us into celebrating this Lord's Supper together. But remember, folks, as we think about this, that we are tempted to believe the lies and deceits of Satan. We experience hurts from outside, pain, suffering, shame, guilt. All these things Satan is too happy to try and deceive us with, as if those are truth, that in those things we should live. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, it is not reality. Yes, they're real experiences. Yes, they're real things that we walk in, for sure. But there is a heavenly reality right now for our Savior, for his kingdom, and for his people that have been brought into that kingdom. Do not believe the lies and deceit of Satan. Believe the realities of what Christ has purchased and accomplished for us as Savior and Lord. Do not believe the lies and deceits that he wants to throw at you. Do not be tempted by him. Put on the shield of faith and walk and endure. Let me also encourage you too that as you read the Old Testament, and please read the Old Testament, you should. Hopefully you see like without the Old Testament, we, we aren't getting any of this. We're not seeing the story at all. We must understand and grasp the Old Testament scriptures. But if we jump into the Old Testament scriptures and we do the work of application without running those stories and those narratives and those truths through the lens of Christ's finished work and his current rule and reign, then we will go astray in different ways. We will not fully understand the story. We will get mixed up in the story of redemption. And we will end up potentially cowering in ways when we should walk empowered by the Spirit of Christ and walk in joy and celebration. So I encourage you to read the Old Testament through the finished work of Christ and through that lens. The final reason why the ascension matters. Jesus is the better sacrifice and the better priest. So in Leviticus 16, we find God's directions for sacrificial offerings on the Day of Atonement. There are instructions for how God's people and his priests and the sanctuary itself of the temple could be cleansed of sin's defilement and be set apart for the service of God. There's much detail in that chapter about how to prepare the animal sacrifices and apply their blood for cleansing. It sounds distasteful and almost barbaric at points to our contemporary perspective, but it's important to realize the grace and the symbolism going on here. In Leviticus 17.11, God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. 
for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The sacrificial death of an obedient, innocent life represented in the spotless nature of offered animals was the fuel for holiness and for ongoing fellowship with God. We see this from the very beginning where an animal was killed so as to make clothing or a covering for Adam and Eve after they sinned. God designed his creation for communion with him. He will not let our sin and rebellion thwart that. But our sin is treacherous and treasonous and flies in the face of God's holiness. And so the path back to God is not trite or easy. It requires the life of a worthy one be laid down on behalf of the guilty. After all the preparations on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was instructed to take the blood and the sacrificial bull into the innermost sanctuary, the most holy place where God dwelt and had proximity with his people, and to sprinkle that blood on the very throne of God, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Then that same blood, now consecrated as most holy, was brought back out into the courtyard of the tabernacle, where it was sprinkled on the offering and the altar of burnt offering. This is the place where Israel made daily sacrifices to God, where they ritualistically ate and participated in the holiness of God. Through this worship and liturgy, God's holiness radiated outward from his earthly dwelling place, and it provided cleansing and sanctification for his people. It was Israel's means in that time of ongoing fellowship with their covenant Lord. Of course, this Old Testament sacrificial system was a picture of our true need and their true need, and a prefigurement of how God would provide true, lasting atonement for his people. Listen to how the author of Hebrews takes this day of atonement and shows it fulfilled in every way in Christ. Hebrews 9, 6 and following says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of God, and of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh— how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Through his humiliation and his exaltation, again, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, Christ has torn down the veil of the tabernacle and thrown open the gates of heaven, entering the dwelling place of God as both our high priest and the spotless sacrificial lamb. He is the true and final offering for sin, whereby the Spirit's work to unite us to Christ by faith gives us the merits of his perfect life laid down for us. 
He brings the holiness of God to us here in the wilderness now through spirit and word and sacrament, the sign and seal of the new covenant in Christ that he has ordained for his church to provide and remind us of our fellowship with God and to set us apart for his service. It is good that we remind ourselves of this and participate together in this communion with our Lord, which is itself a sign of our present reality, as well as a foretaste of the fullness of fellowship with God and of unity with one another, which we will have forever at Christ's return. So let's pray and celebrate. God, we thank you for this visible gospel we get to partake in now. We thank you for sending your disciples out into the harvest fields to call us to your banquet table. May we worship in spirit and truth as we celebrate Christ's finished work together. Amen. The Lord's Supper serves as the ongoing sign of the church's covenantal relationship with Christ. It's given to the local expressions of Christ's church, to us, to practice in this age of his reign of grace until he comes to reign in power and glory. Through it, we declare that we are truly the followers of Christ, bound to and known by him, and bound to and known by each other as a result. Therefore, we invite all who have trusted Christ for salvation all who have been baptized, all who are affirmed as Christians by a gospel-preaching local church. And by that, we mean that you're a member of a church in the way that your church handles deliberate membership and understanding of who is with them. And they are not living in deliberate, unrepentant sin. If this does not describe you, then we ask that you not partake with us today. If you are not God's child by faith in Christ, then we implore you, repent and believe the good news of Jesus God provides redemption, restoration, and new life to all who come to him through faith in Christ's atoning work, regardless of your past. We hope that we, the church this morning, have presented these things to you well, in word and in deed, and even now in our celebration around the table, that we serve a holy, majestic, wonderful, and merciful creator and Lord. We are nothing special, but he is everything. If you're a believer, but you don't understand why we make baptism and public commitment to a local church a prerequisite for the table, please know we welcome further questions and discussion about how we view these covenant signs and membership with the body of Christ. Let's sing together now, and as we sing, at some point as we sing, you're welcome to grab the elements at the table. Strongly encourage you to open that up before we're done singing so you have access to these elements at the time that we partake together. Let's sing.